Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan. With me, as always, is Gareth. Hello, mother. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Uh, we are discussing today the 1980s sitcom Sorry. Um, I say 1980s. It certainly doesn't feel like it when you watch it. Uh, no, but true. it is, of course, the Ronnie Corbett starring, the Ronnie Corbett vehicle, Sorry. And uh, I, I do feel like this episode is going to be quite Ronnie Corbett heavy because yeah. I, I was trying to think before I actually sort of started researching this officially, like what other sitcoms has Ronnie Corbett done? And I couldn't think of any. Uh, did you know of any? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I, I, obviously, I as- associate Ronnie Corbett with the two Ronnies and that kind of yeah. sketch comedy world. And I know that he made a few films. I, you know, it was in No Sex, Please, We're British, which yeah. was a kind of classic British 70s sex comedy. But no, I mean, has he been in any other sitcoms? Yes, but before this and before the two Ronnies, basically, right. in these earlier days when they were trying to uh, make something of him. But yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of history to Ronnie Corbett, and I, I suspect this is going to be our only chance to talk about him in detail. So I think we can we can go into a bit of detail there with him. Before we get stuck into uh, into Ronnie Corbett, then just tell me a little bit about Sorry. So you you said it's it's in the eighties, and it's funny you said it doesn't feel like it. I, I definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, this this sitcom ran from nineteen eighty one to nineteen eighty eight. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, seven series. Which really surprised me, because I would have guessed it was kind of late 70s to early 80s. And I think that's just because I do remember it when I was a kid. Mm. But I sort of remember it being, I don't know, a little bit like Last of the Summer Wine. It was just something that was for, not really for kids. It wasn't really entertaining. It was a bit boring. (laughs) It is. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, and and now just to be clear... um, when I came into this, to the research for this, I wasn't particularly familiar with Sorry. I knew of it. I'd seen a few clips, but I certainly hadn't kind of watched it in any real uh, amount like I, I have mm. now. I've watched the whole thing. And I, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But yeah, I, I think in my head, you I agree with you. It feels like a Sunday evening sitcom <laughs> rather than a sort of nine o'clock on a, on a Friday evening or something like that. But what what exactly, uh, perhaps this is a good question to ask you, what what do you think the demographic of this show is? Like, who do you think this is aimed at? <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of family show, but mm. it's, I, I think it's aimed at the generation of Timothy's mother. <laughs> I think it's aimed at people who have got grown up kids and either have seen them fl- fly the nest or haven't and want yeah. them to. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of that. Obviously, we'll we'll get into the details of the characters, and she's a caricature of that uh, domineering mother figure. But yeah, I, I think there are probably a lot of people from who could relate to that, having a grown up kid in the house. Just to lay the groundwork here, let's just lay out what the the premise of Sorry is. Mm. So the idea uh, is that the, our principal character here is Timothy Lumsden, played by Ronnie Corbett. At the start of the series, he's in his early forties. He's forty one. Mm. Is he there? And. <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> Ronnie we'll, Corbett we'll, wasn't. Go, I'm sorry, <laughs> we'll get back to that. Uh, but yeah, he's he's 41, still lived with his parents, and uh, kind of not quite achieved all those things in life that perhaps you would expect, such as family. And he has a job, he has a career, but it's not quite a, a booming and, and, and successful thing. He's just sort of a quiet librarian. He, Yeah, but the, the main thing here is that he has an extremely domineering mother who suppresses him at every turn, really, and treats him like a child. Yeah. 
Uh, so that's the basic setup, and that largely doesn't change throughout the whole series. Mm-hmm. We really stick to it. There's some extra elements that come in. We'll, I think we'll discuss them as we go along. It is interesting that his job is librarian. So I guess in 1981, librarian was, I don't know, like a, a stereotypical job for someone in that position. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I kind of thought to myself, oh, what's wrong with being a librarian? But it does. Yeah. it is the punchline to many jokes throughout the series. Oh, he's only a librarian. I was like, well, that's not, that's not a terrible job. That's all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's okay. And I think the general idea is it's just not very exciting. And, and that kind of fits his life. But ultimately, he's quite well-read, obviously. He's, yeah. he's he's quite intelligent. So that all adds into that. But it has to be something that doesn't have particular potential for growth <laughs> as a career, I guess. Although there are a couple of episodes where he tries to get a promotion uh, and uh, he's scuppered, of course. Well, let's talk about his age. So you said he's 41 when the show starts. Yes. But Ronnie Cobb was definitely older than 41 when this was made, wasn't he? He was 51, yes. He was 51, um, right, okay. Yeah, generally speaking, um, Timothy's age does increase uh, as the series go along, pretty much in line with 10 years younger than Ronnie Corbett actually is. Mm. Uh, but interestingly, I think between series 6 and 7, he goes from being 45 to 48, even though the the story pretty much continues straight away. Like, there is a kind of narrative that continues. So um, it's a little bit loose, his age. <laughs> Uh, I think certainly in the early part of it, you get away with it. You know, Ronnie Corbett, he's obviously a little bit older, but, you know, it's all right. He looks a bit younger than he is. By the end, it's it's starting to stretch credulity a little bit. Well, well, the point is that his his mother infantilizes him, treats him like a child. And, you know, there's an element that he sort of, he he, kind of dresses like a, (laughs) he doesn't dress like a child. He's always, but he he almost dresses too smart. I tell you what it was reminding me of, you know, whenever you see uh, little Prince George out and about at the the (laughs) European Championship (laughs) final and he's got a suit and tie on. (laughs) It reminded me of Ronnie Corbett as Timothy Lumsden. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. He's always well, well turned out. And and in fact, there's there's a a part in the episode that we're going to look at specifically uh, where this uh, this comes up. Um, so let's let's deal with that later. I think. Hmm. But yeah, just uh, for reference, uh, any listeners out there, we will be looking at series three, episode five. It never rained in those days. That's the one we've picked just as a, a kind of a focus for us. But we we've uh, we've gone through the entire series. So we'll be looking at the show as a whole as well. So series three, episode five, it never rained in those days. And we open up um, with Timothy. He's in the attic looking for something. Yeah. And he's going through some of his mother's mother's things, unopened birthday presents. But this this episode for me, and bear in mind, I'd only watched, um, I'd watched one episode from series one, one episode from series two. This was the first one I watched from series three. Yeah. And so there's a new character here, uh, Moo. Uh, which is yeah. um, Timothy's sister Muriel. So is this her first appearance? When did when did she when did she no, come into she the series? No, she is she is in it right from series one. Mm. But they certainly start to use her more and more as they go through the series. In contrast to Frank Roy Holder's character, who mm. gets used less and less as we go through. But yes, at, at first she is introduced. I believe it's the first series, but she's introduced as. He's got oh they've got a sister as well and she hasn't spoken to the mother for six months but she's coming round and then they have a very awkward kind of dinner and, and all this sort of thing and then later on she becomes much more of a regular fixture but she's just coming round. 
she's an interesting addition because clearly the relationship between it's Phyllis, isn't it? Should we call her Phyllis? The mother, <laughs> the mother character. Yeah. Phyllis and Timothy is, is pivotal to this sitcom. Mm. And so it's interesting to have that contrast of this other kid who, you know, the relationship between Phyllis and Muriel is very different. Yes. The Muriel character does change a bit as it goes along. Uh, and I think that was just more about, you know, it was originally intended as this one concept. And then, then they, oh, right, let's make more of this. Let's make more of this. Mm. So you have to change it slightly. I, I think the fact that he's not an only child is quite unusual uh, for, for a start. She's the younger sister, uh, but obviously she acts like she's older. She's certainly, she's moved on with her life and she's got more responsibilities, etc., mm. etc. She's married. She's got kids. And she talks to him. I was going to say she talks down to him, but she talks to him like a younger brother. Like she's trying yes. to help him and give him advice yes. and, and all this sort of thing. Because he might he might be older in years, but he's been you know kept. He's emotionally stunted. Yes. Yes. And I think that works nicely having someone there to prop him up because he needs something. Otherwise, it's just mm. this unending barrage of abuse. Yeah. Uh, which again, I think, like I said earlier, having the father a bit more on his side does help that. But yeah, by this point, we're already getting into the idea that Muriel, as a daughter, and I, and I, I, it's a shame that they don't develop her more and kind of look into this a bit more. But is she becoming her mother? And mm-hmm. they they flirt with the idea. How much that is coming into it in a very conscious level, I don't know. But there there is definitely elements as we go along where. It's not so much about Muriel going, do this because this is going to be better for you. It's more like, well, do this because then I win and not my mum. Yes. Uh, and it, it definitely never gets too far into that territory. And like I say, it would have been nice to develop that a bit more and have more from that mm. character. I don't think we quite get there. Yeah. But it feels more like an actor bringing that in rather than the writers. You know, the right. actor kind of finding their own motivation as to why they do it. It's just kind of a bit of a subtext. Yeah. So yeah, Muriel as a character is still in a kind of development phase. But I think she is a really important element to have just to give Timothy a kind of a life raft sometimes. Let's well, let me take you back to our episode then, Alan. So so yeah, they're going through um, they're going through all <laughs> Phyllis's unopened birthday presents. So you know, people give her a present every year, and she just chucks it in the attic because she's got absolutely no interest in what people mm-hmm. have given to her. And then she arrives, and they end up looking through some old photo albums. So they're looking at these times of when Phyllis was young and when she was. She was out with her friends. Uh, she mentions this chap, Edgar Horsfield, who was obviously someone she had a crush on back then. Mm. And she gets quite wistful, doesn't she? She sort of, you know, she drifts off in a bit of a reverie. Yes, and this is another quite common thing she does, which seems to be completely to undermine the husband. Basically going, oh, well, you know, so-and-so was a lot better than you. I should have married him. I could have married him if I'd wanted to. He would have had me. I was so sexy and popular back in the day. So... Let's talk about Phyllis. Yes. What is she? Like, based on what you've seen, how, what would you describe her as? I think she is malevolent. I think she is abusive. I think she's evil. I think she's yeah. too much for a sitcom. I, I, I think there's a, there's a rich comedy to be had in a controlling mother figure. Mm. But she's not, she's, she is controlling, but she's more than that. Mm. She she undermines him. She belittles him. She actively tries to ruin his happiness. She's evil. 
Yeah, this isn't great for a discussion, but I 100% agree with you. <laughs> I'll, give you I'll give you a good example. There's uh, an episode that we watched, uh, Series 2, I think it was, and it was the one where uh, he's best man at Frank's wedding. Yes. And everything goes wrong, much hilarity ensues, and there's a little mm. bit of farce. He basically gets there, he's late, and he's covered in muck and yeah, blah, blah, blah. And she leans across from the, the pew, leans across the church, and she goes, Timothy, this is all your fault. You've ruined this. And it's just this like venom in her face and her mouth. And she's twisted with rage at him. And it's like, it's not even your wedding. You're just a guest at this wedding. <laughs> I mean, I totally agree. I think she's absolutely despicable. And I think it is too far. I think it's too yeah, far it's too to much. work as comedy. It's just horrific. And I've seen the later series where, if anything, they get worse. In series six, there's a, a, an overarching story arc in which Timothy wants to get married. He meets a, a woman and... Yeah, They're getting married. We'll talk about that later. But a specific example in that is she's just doing everything possible she can to try and destroy this relationship, including one episode where the entire kind of plot of the episode is she has faked her own suicide so that she can leave a note saying, I'm killed myself because you're marrying this woman and I <laughs> and I hate you. To then turn up again a few days later and go, well, I hope you've learned your lesson. <laughs> And it's just like that is and, and, and that's yeah the lesson you learn from that is not the one you want. <laughs> it's just completely sociopathic. It's it's insane. It's, it's and she really is horrible. And yeah. even I think in the earlier series it's a little bit more subtle, but it, 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 in some ways that's worse because it's it's more like gaslighting. And yeah. really emotional blackmail, emotional manipulation. Whereas in the later series, it's literally, if you don't do exactly what I say, I'm going to cut you out of my will. If you don't do exactly what I say, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. At one point, uh, he's he's moving out of his house. He's moving out of the house. He's going to buy his own home. Mm -hmm. And so he comes back one day and she's taken all the furniture out and sold everything. And she's saying, oh, I've sold the house because, well, you're leaving. So we don't need this house anymore. I'm putting your dad in a home. And I'm going to go, I'll, I'll be living on the street. What are you going to do? And she, But she's done it. Like, the house is empty. She's not threatening to do it. <laughs> she's, <laughs> well, one of the first things I wrote down, as I, I was sort of watching the first five minutes of the first episode, and I wrote down, which will make you laugh, because I always say this every episode, is there a bit of a Steptoe vibe here? <laughs> I compare everything to Steptoe. So. But, you know, is this, is this Albert Steptoe, you know, keeping hold of, of Harold and not letting, him, uh, not letting him leave, not letting him grow? But I very quickly wrote, she is a really nasty piece of work, way worse than Albert Steptoe. And that's, and that's true. That, yeah. And I think what you've just said, it doesn't work. Like Steptoe works because yeah. of, uh, we talked at length about the great performance uh, of Wilfred Bramble and how he skates that line between being a nasty piece of work, but actually being a really terrified, lonely old man. There's none of that here. She's just, she's just malevolent. Timothy's got plenty of money and refuses to buy me a new washing machine. I intend to sign my will tomorrow. The dog's home gets the lot. Unless, of course, the fairies bring me a washing machine before then. <laughs> From the hypermarket, late night shopping tonight. <laughs> Good night, children. Everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I think the comparison to Steptoe is excellent, actually, because it shows, like, how it's done well. Albert Steptoe is so often sympathetic, we kind of understand where he's coming from. With with this character, we don't get that. Even if you give the benefit of the doubt that she's terrified her son is going to leave, because that's, obviously, that's her... Yeah. 
her, her motivation in life. That's how she identifies as a mother, I guess. But why then is she so horrible to him all the time? And also, the other kind of recurring joke is that she's a terrible cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, her food is is diabolical, and again to a t- completely caricatured degree. And that's a that's an interesting other sitcom stereotype of a, a woman who can't cook basically, and or, <laughs> or can't keep a home, a housewife yes. who can't keep a home, and so she's fundamentally failing at the kind of the the things she's supposed to be doing. That's a weird thing with this character, which I I think is perhaps not a deliberately written inconsistency in that she is kind of house proud when she you know that she's keeping up with the joneses you know there's so and so from the ladies committee is coming round, and so i have to put on the show but then her house isn't clean there's silverfish everywhere and then like that's why muriel comes around and cleans things and because she, she's disgusted by it and the food is terrible we never quite get those moments of her like a hyacinth bouquet thing right trying to mm. impress someone what are you doing with the coal mother We've got visitors coming. <laughs> You're not going to paint it white now, are you? I'm sorting them out. I only want big lumps. Oh, just like the gravy, I see. <laughs> I don't want people thinking we buy nutty slack, especially at summer prices. Now, I want you to go out on the front drive and comb the gravel into nice patterns. (laughs) We just kind of have to accept that that's happening, but then she's also a terrible cook and and all that sort of stuff. But then it gets so bad that it's like, well, why is Timothy staying there? What is it? Because I think there's, there's an intimation in earlier episodes that the idea is he's kind of emotionally mature and so... This life is comfortable. And so going out yeah. into the big ride world and getting a better job or getting a better, getting his own house is scary. Getting a wife would be scary. And so he kind of backs off and goes, oh, well, the mother's womb is kind of nice and, and comfortable. And that's that would work to an extent, but this is too far the other way because there mm. is nothing comfortable about his life. There's nothing pleasant about his life. Yeah. And in the earlier episodes, we get a few moments where we kind of go, okay, well, that's why he likes being treated like a child. So that's why this works. But he's got nothing to compare it with, has he? Because he's he's been there all his life. You know, it's like, you know, when you read about abuse victims, uh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get too drift too far away from our, our comedy brief here. But when you hear about abuse victims, you know, abusers will tell them, no one else will have you. You know, you are stuck with me. Don't communicate with other people. Don't have relationships mm. outside this one. Because they know that if they've got the victim trapped, then that's all they know and they'll stay. And th- th- it's an abusive relationship. There's no other way to... Oh, there's it. no doubt this is terrible abuse, yeah. And it, that, that, that that's wrong, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't make for good comedy. <laughs> was, that, yeah. was, that, was that all right in the 80s? Like, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, people say some things that are a bit racist in these old sitcoms and times have changed. Is that kind of abusive, possessive relationship viewed differently now than it would have been in the 80s? I don't know. It's, it's obviously a caricature. We accept that. It's mm-hmm. over the top. But it's just so far over the top. And like, she hits him as well. She does hit him. I guess not in a kind of terribly, she's going to leave uh, broken bones kind of way. But, you know, she's not afraid to give him a smack around the head. Mm-hmm. And that becomes more and more prevalent later on as well. Yeah, it's just, I just don't understand what's keeping him there. And and this is the other problem with the character, I think. That the person who would be in that position is not Timothy Lumsden. Because when he's out of that house, he's quite confident. He's not great with women, but he's happy to talk to his mates and he's kind of outgoing and he's, yes. he'll make a joke. And he's yes, kind it of, doesn't work. It doesn't fit. 
and then but then you have moments where you see him in his job and uh you know he's has to tell someone off at the library and he's no good he's no good at sort of asserting himself in that yeah. sense and there's even an episode where he goes to self-assertiveness classes and he walks into this room of people who are just terribly shy and can't can't take their eyes off the floor and he just comes in and completely dominates the situation like oh how is everybody how's it going oh well, <laughs> oh look some coffee let's get that you know it's this weird dichotomy of is he confident or not <laughs> and is yeah. it just when his mother's around or not uh, and i think for this dynamic between them to work he needs to be more of a broken man uh, <laughs> yes yeah well but obviously that, that wouldn't problem. that this, would be this, even less funny <laughs> this abusive relationship does not make for good comedy so <laughs> yeah. either the relationship needs to be less abusive or as you put it yeah he needs to be more broken <laughs> <laughs> well look i'll tell you what why don't we spend a bit of time uh talking about ronnie corbett because he's obviously yeah. the, the you know this this sitcom was built around him he's the star so yeah tell me tell me about ronnie corbett's history let's go into that Right. Okay. Well, Ronnie Corbett. Obviously, if you say who the who's Ronnie Corbett, it's the two Ronnies. That's what everyone's gonna point to, right? Sure. But when the two Ronnies started, that was 1971. He was 41. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he was Timothy Lumsden's age. He was uh, born in 1930. He's Scottish. You know, born and raised in Edinburgh, and pretty standard story of being an amateur dramatics actor. Caught the bug as a child. Yeah. And, uh, of course, because of his diminutive stature... (laughs) I'm looking at my notes here for all the episodes that I've watched. I've got several pages of handwritten notes in front of me. And what I wrote down a couple of times in all seriousness, and then it became funny. I've written down... It's funny because he's short, <laughs> which which just seemed to be the, the you know, <laughs> a lot of the humour was stemming from that simple fact. Yeah, interestingly enough, I saw some interviews and things with some of the, with the, with the writers and uh, one of them said, you don't make jokes about Ronnie Corbett being short. He can make jokes about him being short. Timothy Lumsden can make jokes about him being short, mm. but the mother never makes a joke about him being short. His friends never make a joke about him being short. Interesting. They didn't write that in. It was kind of a you don't do that. It was it was and and the writer said it wasn't like a kind of he said don't do that. It was just an understood thing. So are you trying to tell me that Ronnie Corbett had a thing about it? Like I, I can't believe that he was sensitive about it because you know <laughs> he's made a good living out of it. Well, I, I from a few things I've watched and read about kind of there's quite a lot of stuff out there about biographical information, mm. Ronnie Corbett, and looking at his life and career and interviews with him and things. Basically, the impression I got was in his early days, he was a bit sensitive about it, as you might be, and kind of learned over the years to embrace it. And it and it's his brand, you know, that's that's what makes you stand out and use it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's obviously an element of unkindness to just poking fun at someone because they're short. Mm. But as we're going to talk about, the mother is very unkind to him. And so it's interesting that she doesn't use that to hurt him because she uses plenty of other things to hurt him. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps it was just a bit too real. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting because that's because that's you know the short stature is not the character. That's that's Ronnie Corbett. And and, and like you say, it's 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 certainly been his brand. And uh, back it back in his younger days, uh, it meant that he could specialize playing child roles for sort of much longer than perhaps he he would have mm. 
otherwise. But he did his national service and uh, he was in the RAF and, and, and things. Despite that, they kind of... Yeah. Basically, because of his height, he didn't have to do national service, but he chose to do it anyway. Right. But then pretty much he made his career, where he made his bones was in cabaret, in the London cabaret circuit. and. Okay. His primary thing there was uh, Danny LaRue. He worked with Danny LaRue. Oh, that's interesting. That was his first comedy partner, I guess. And Danny LaRue was obviously the star. So Ronnie Corbett generally played the heroic male role to Danny LaRue's uh, femme fatale, I guess, or whatever it was particularly. And the fact that he was so small and, you know, a good foot shorter than uh, Danny LaRue, even when he wasn't in heels, uh, meant that it it already had a comedic element to it and all that sort of thing. It's funny because he's short. Exactly, yeah. And... um, and uh, but that's where he earned his bones, really. And he, he he is very much cabaret, music hall, old school variety comedy, as opposed to. Uh, and I'll use the example Ronnie Barker, an actor who specialises in comedy. Well, it's interesting. So the first thing, that, sorry, the earliest thing I can think of seeing Ronnie Corbett in is those very first sketches with Ronnie Barker and John Cleese. You know, I know my mm-hmm. place where he was the the working class character yeah. and those everybody can picture that so that was that was in the 60s yes um uh, well yes ronnie corbett was uh invited to join the frost report by david frost um mm. from what i understand david frost being the the well-known coxman that he was back in the day uh was was seeing one of the girls in the cabaret show and so saw ronnie corbett because he you know came to see his lady friend liked what he did and obviously had a bit of a reputation by then. Anyway, he was working in general musical theatre and, and he'd been on TV. He did some work on Cracker Jack mm-hmm. uh, for a while as well. So, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. But yes, he was invited to join the Frost Report by David Frost. And that was his breakthrough. That was very much kind of what made him known as so many others, uh, you know, from the same source as we've seen. You know, um, that. Was that the first time you worked with Ronnie Barker? Yes, I, as I understand it, yes. And apparently they connected with each other on that because they were the two there that weren't kind of Oxbridge mm. uh, background, really. They were both from a slightly more lower middle class upbringing. Uh, you know, Ronnie Corbett, his his father was a baker. So that's the kind of level of, uh, in terms of class structure. We, we've, not t- we've not talked about his, his childhood. Now, look, can I just ask you, I'm not sure how to phrase this, how Scottish is he? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, totally Scottish, born and raised in Edinburgh. Uh, just lost the accent for professional purposes, basically. Right, okay. Yeah, because his accent's not strong. It's, you can you can hear it there. You can tell. Although okay, not yeah. in Sorry. I think, you know, he's got rid of it because he's obviously playing a, a man born and raised in the home counties. Mm. But yeah, it's never been a strong accent. No, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, straight up Scottish. That kind of slightly, Edinburgh is a slightly uh, lighter accent than, say, Glasgow. <laughs> but uh, perhaps you can get rid of it a bit easier. Okay, so Frost Report, he meets Ronnie Barker, and is yes. that straight then into the two Ronnies? What, what, what else happens? No, so the Frost Report, I think he was working on that from about 65, and, and you know, that was obviously a hotbed of talent. Uh, we've seen so many success stories come out of that. Uh, with Ronnie Corbett, the first sort of attempt to make him uh, uh, his own vehicle, it was a sitcom called No, That's Me Over Here. Which in which he played the lead. Uh, that was from 1967. It ran to about 1970. And that was written by Barry Cryer and Graham Chapman. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I, that's such a terrible name for a program. <laughs> I've, I've just been sat thinking about that for a few seconds while you were talking. Say it again. It was called... No, that's me over here. 
Well, you see, one of the things mark. that annoys me about Sorry is that it's got an exclamation mark, and I've got no time for punctuation in, uh, in sitcom names. So, no, that's me over here. Has that got a comma in it? It's got a hyphen, I believe. No hyphen. Oh, that's it's me got over. time for punctuation. Yeah, well. <laughs> but yeah, so he's the lead in that, and it's a pretty standard, like, he's a little middle management guy who's trying to get ahead, but he's not quite confident enough to do it. He's got a wife and all that sort of thing. It's... It's pretty standard stuff of the time. Uh, I was just saying to Laura how ludicrous it is for people to bear grudges against the nation, you know, so long after the war. Oh, not altogether ludicrous? No, that's what I was saying to Laura, really. Uh, you see, we've, uh, we've got this German, this um, Austrian, uh, Swiss friend who uh, come over here to teach. I think he's come over to teach anyway. We get so muddled, you see, because we have so many foreign friends, you see. Uh, but he's a very nice chap. Um, but aren't they? Um, and, you know, Laura and I are terribly keen on languages because, of course, of our entertaining foreign friends. Uh, it ran for a few series, so it obviously did okay. It was written by Barry Cryer and Graham Chapman. I believe Eric mm. Idle was a writer uh, on the first series as well. So it was from that f- David Frost... Uh, in fact, David Frost's company produced it. And, and okay. David Frost was the one who had Ronnie Corbett and Ronnie Barker under contract, like even throughout the two Ronnie's years. I see. The BBC negotiated through him, perhaps not personally, but you know what I mean? He kind of owned them in that well, sense. That's interesting. So that's, that's a precursor to the sort of production company, independent production company model. And, and, and Frost was right at the forefront of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. He He was the only person kind of big enough to get away with it. Interesting. So that is unusual, yeah. But they, these guys obviously trusted him, and so they, they went off and did that. That wasn't exactly a roaring success, and th- that was followed up by another sitcom, which was written by Barry Cry and Graham Chapman. Uh, this was called Now Look Here. Um, another great title. Uh, so this one, uh, 1971 to 73, just a couple of series, and it's quite a similar concept to Sorry, in that it's about this guy who... Is supposed to be in his early 30s, I think, sort of 10 years younger yeah. than Ronnie Corby actually was, and is a little bit henpacked by his mother. But the whole the whole course of the series is him moving out. He, he moves in with a friend, Richard O'Sullivan, and then like finds a girlfriend. And I think in the second series, he's married. I've made your cocoa. It's nice and hot. Now drink it before it gets cold. You left it last night. I made it with milk. Would you like a cheese sandwich? No, thank you, Mother. It's no trouble. Cheese and pickle, you'd like that. I'm not hungry, Mother. You had an early tea. I know. I was there. Just that I don't think you're (laughs) You're not eating enough for lunch, dear. Why don't you come home for lunch like you used to? Well, that's interesting. So that sounds like something of a precursor to Sorry. Yes, it is. Have have you seen much of that? Not a lot, but what I've seen, it's it's quite different in tone, but it's that similar concept of a domineering mother. And it's obviously something that just lends itself well to Ronnie Corbett somehow. (laughs) Is there an element of, okay, well, that that was okay, but we, we could do it better. And so that's when they came up with Sorry. Well, not that I know of, because there's certainly different writers, uh, but perhaps there's... Bear in mind that Sorry was written for Ronnie Corbett. It wasn't just mm. a, a spec script and, and he was a good fit. It was written for him by writers who had worked with him for a long time. Yeah. So I think it's just two different sets of writers going, Ronnie Corbett has this kind of aura about him. He has this kind of style. So let's work to that. And for some reason, that is yeah. sort of slightly put upon. And and, and, and I, I've, I've heard writers sort of going on about him being a, waffling, 
kind of waffling uh, the way he'll speak where he'll just go mm. oh yeah well you know i could do this oh, i mean unless you want to do this i mean we could do this instead if that's what you want or maybe maybe we could do this you know, you know that yeah. kind of thing which i think is his stock in trade so it just it just lends itself to a, a character whose confidence is being undercut uh, well all, at the risk time, of, of breaking into your narrative here that you know, if I think about Ronnie Corbett, I don't think about sorry. I think about him and the two Ronnies mm-hmm. sitting in that big black chair telling an anecdote. Yeah. Like, and, and think, I mean, I'm remembering me as a kid thinking, this is a bit boring. But the point is, that sort of anecdotal style of telling a little story and holding court and just keeping a, a group's attention. But you can imagine him in the pub telling that story. Yeah. And watching Sorry this week, there are several times where he... It reminded me of that a lot. So just to give you an example, uh, he's sat in the pub and he's reading the reading the paper and he says, I have in front of me a copy of the Evening Echo. And he goes on to say something else. And then he sort of interrupts himself and he says, last night's Evening Echo. And I thought, well, that didn't feel scripted. It was just like, yeah. it, it kind of rolled and it, it, it sort of corrected himself. And it, it felt like him just telling a story rather than reading a script. Mm. And I, I, I'm curious, and you probably don't know, but I'm curious as to what was ha, how that is scripted. You know, like did, with, look, you, you hear about Frankie Howard, every ooh and ah being scripted. Yeah. But I, I wonder if that was the case with Ronnie Corbett. It was just like, here's your line, just you know, do it in your own style. I think I can answer that because again, I've seen people talk about this in interviews. And for one thing, the writers say the great thing about Ronnie Corbett is you send him the script and he does the script. He doesn't go, I don't like this bit, change this. He does the script and he goes away and learns the script and he comes to rehearsals and he knows it and he's Mm. he's ready to go. Also, there are moments like that that you've just mentioned. And there's a quite, you you see that sort of thing regularly in the show in which you can tell that what, what he's doing is he's working with the audience. Yes. If they're laughing he'll buy a bit of time by throwing an extra line in. If he realises he can get an extra laugh out of that, he'll take it. And that is the experience of someone who has spent 30 years on the stage. Cabaret. Yeah, exactly. And so those are those moments. But other than those moments, it's pretty much sticking to the script. And I also heard him say something like... um, he knew there were certain people he could play with a little bit more. So, so Roy Holder, as his friend Frank mm-hmm. in the show, he knew he could kind of go as slightly off-piste with him uh, because just the nature of the conversation. Yeah, let me give you another example, which you, you can probably drop this in. But um, there was the bit where he's talking to Roy Holder in the pub and he was saying he was going to go and ask out this girl. And Roy Holder, sa- Holder said, yes, you can do it. You're tall enough. And he said, well, well, I know I'm tall enough. I know that. And then there was a bit of a laugh, bit of a laugh, and he started the next line, and then he came back and he said, well, why, "Why did you bring that up? That up? I know I'm tall enough." And it was like he was he was replaying that line and getting another laugh from it. Yeah, that was exactly an, as a perfect example of what what I'm talking about. That's just the one thing that sort of worries me, you know, that kind of. Well, you're tall enough. I know I'm tall enough. I know I'm tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Why did you bring that up? I know I'm tall enough. I know that. I know that. It's just that. I. I. It's just. Funny thing to say that was, Frank. I. I. It's just. It's just that. I. You know, I might be too old. Forty-one. No, forty-one. I mean, these two girls wouldn't be forty-one added together. That's the only moments where he's going off script, so to mm. speak. Uh, but in a, in a, obviously in a way that works very well, and it's very Ronnie Corbett. I mean, even very though, Ronnie Corbett. Like, yes. like you say, the famous monologues, the chair monologues. 
it's all scripted, but he he also knows when to drive it home or when to just let it lie or, you know, let the audience ride the, the wave or whatever he's doing. And, you know, I think that that's the, you know, I'm jumping ahead here of sort of what I think about Sorry. I don't really like it very much, but the best bit of it by a million miles is that Ronnie Cobb is a very talented, funny guy. And it's those little moments where you see him performing that, that you think, oh God, this is, yeah, this is really professionally done. This is really good. Yeah. In fact, if, if I may sort of echo that slightly, the one thing I took from Surrey, and again, I didn't particularly care for the show, but the one thing I took from it, particularly the earlier series, is that everything Ronnie Corbett does is perfect. It's just mm-hmm. every mannerism, the intonation, the hesitation, it's just spot on. It's exact, And obviously yeah. it's written for him. It's written for him by people who've worked with him for 20 years. You know, that helps. Yeah. But it's just everything. This is not an actor um, just playing a part. It's... It's a comedian embodying the role, you know. It's 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 really beautifully done, and you, it's if anything, it's just highlighted, yeah, the professionalism of Ronnie Corby. Yeah. But that again, that is a, even at this point, he's been on the working cabaret and comedy scene for mm-hmm. thirty years. So yeah, you expect that, I suppose. So it's good that you've got that. Well, sorry, I took us off at a tangent and interrupted your timeline there. So so oh, yeah, yeah go, go on back to where you were. Uh, I think the only other thing to mention, the only other proper sitcom that I can I could find is The Prince of Denmark, which was a direct sequel to Now Look Here. So, um, and it just did one series. So, really, in theory, that's only properly two sitcoms before Sorry, uh, two attempts at sitcoms that were kind of mediocrely not not really that well remembered. And there's definitely, um, in terms of from Ronnie Corbett's point of view, uh, there was a lot in his early career. He said people would. Because he was small, people would try and make him the kind of the 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 goon, the gump character. I think he referred to it as the gump. <laughs> yeah, basically like Norman Wisdom or or even David Jason, a younger David Jason. It's like the small guy who gets knocked about and things thrown in his face, and then he slips on his bum and all that sort of thing. That's kind of what the little fella does in musical, I guess. And he just always moved away from that and never did that and it, and I think that's why there was a there was a time there when he didn't quite fit in didn't quite know what to do with him yeah so to get to the origin of sorry mm. what i heard uh from interviews with Ronnie Corbett is that part of the deal with the BBC to do the two Ronnies which started in 1971 part of their deal was we're happy to work together, but we don't want to be seen just as a double act. And I guess the fact that they hadn't come through, you know, they hadn't come up together and been friends since they were kids and, and all that sort of thing helped that. They were two comedians who wanted to work together. And so part of that, part of their deal with the BBC was that they would also have their individual projects on the go. Hence, we have Open All Hours, we have Porridge, and we have Sorry. But that, but that, is that? I'm interested to make that comparison because in Open All Hours and Porridge we have two blue ribbon top twenty of all time British sitcoms. Yes, and I just don't think Sorry is in that league. Yeah. So I wonder, was there any, was there any, any sense of competition between the two? I don't, I don't know. Uh, not that I know of. Um, in fact, the, one of the beautiful things about the two Ronnies, it does appear that they were always very friendly. Very There's right no step-to-and-sun the darkness behind the, the Yeah, behind and, they, the and they they did the whole go and tour Australia for a year thing, and they, they got on really well. Their wives got on really well together and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I love to hear it. So it's, it's actually quite nice. 
I think that the major difference between the two is Ronnie Barker is an actor and you see that in the range of roles that he takes and the fact that you mm. do a six-part series with different character in each one. Mm. Ronnie Corbett isn't. He he, he kind of plays... He hasn't got that ver- variability uh, the, the, of character that Ronnie yes. Barker has. And that's fine. It's a just different strengths. He's still yeah. perfectly good comedy performer. But it means perhaps you just need to find that one thing that really suits you well. And in this case, it was Sorry. And, and there's certainly no doubt that, no matter what you think of Sorry, that the character is perfect for Ronnie Corbett. Sure. Which is why he, he played the same character in, what was it called? Yes. No? I, sorry, I haven't... Was it? <laughs> sorry, it's Sorry, are you over here? <laughs> uh, what I will say, though, and this is very much my supposition here, and... I have no real evidence to base this on, but perhaps the fact that Sorry ran for seven series and seven years has something to do that the BBC were contractually obliged to give Ronnie Corbett his own vehicle. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that this was unsuccessful. It was actually, like, it, the first series had 13 million viewers. That's not to say it maintained that level of success, but it was a perfectly adequate sitcom, so they had no reason to get rid of it, mm-hmm. and they had a very good reason to just keep churning it out. Sure. And now I don't know how how strict that contract was. Maybe they could have easily just done something else with him or whatever. But it, I think it just sort of ticked a lot of boxes. Yeah. And he was happy to keep doing it. And in fact, Ronnie Barker retired. And the last the last two Ronnies they ever did was a Christmas special of 1987. And yeah. then the last series of Sorry was 1988. So maybe that's a coincidence. Well, we can we, before we go back into Sorry, shall we talk about what Ronnie Corbett did afterwards? Because the comparison there is stark, as in Ronnie Barker retired. Yep. You know, it was quite a few years before he died, but R- Ronnie Corbett never retired. He was still working right up to the end, wasn't he? And and working with younger alternative comedians, if that's... Oh, yeah. That's Certainly he's well-respected uh, within yeah. that, that community. And uh, here's my read on it. Basically, that was the end of the era, the late 80s. The two mm. Ronnies finished, that was that. Sorry finished straight after. Fair enough. That, that had reached a... A fair end. And I think then there was just a slightly fallow period, the next five years or so, where he had to transition, and how comfortable he was with this, I don't know, but in terms of the public eye, he had to transition from, he's a big star on TV doing his thing, to, you know, national treasure, we still respect him, but, you know... It's done, kind of thing. Yeah, he's not he's not bringing anything new to the table. Put it that way, mm. and I think that's fine. I think that's a perfectly good place to be. I think it's a great place to be when you're 65, you know. But I think there was a sort of slightly awkward era, and obviously he was never stopped working during all that time. He was mm. still doing stuff, of course, but perhaps just not quite in, as much in the public eye on you know BBC. And uh, certainly one of the things that sort of brought him back into the public eye was. I think it was the mid-90s, maybe later 90s, but Ben Elton had his own show on the BBC mm. and brought in uh, Ronnie Corbett. I remember this. As a kind of just a, every week, he was like, oh, now we're going to uh, our special guest, Ronnie Corbett, and cut to Ronnie Corbett in the chair, does, does a monologue. Doing his thing, doing his anecdote from the chair. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about this recently when we talked about Ben Elton. Obviously a real lover of the old school stuff, mm. loves Morecambe and Wise, obviously likes the two Ronnies. And so it was like, I can work with Ronnie Corbett. Great. He wrote one of the monologues. You know, he said that was kind of an ambition achieved to write a Ronnie Corbett (laughs) monologue. 
But all those all those monologues, well, not all of them, obviously, but the vast majority of those were written by one guy, by the way, Spike Mullins, who kind of specialised okay. in doing that. Although I did uh, I did see somewhere that David Renwick had written some of them in the eighties. Interesting. Um, so I'm not quite sure how all that worked, but apparently it was Spike Mullins. He was the he was that he was the one who did that, who created that brand, that idea. Did Corbett, did Corbett write nothing? Did he not write anything for himself? No. Um, and I think that's another big difference between him and, for example, Ronnie Barker. Mm. And I think that that's fine. You know, he's a performer, yeah. and certainly he could he could stand up in front of an audience and do ten minutes. He could knock out some gags. It's gags he's been doing for fifty years, mm. and you know, not ones that he came up with. But he's a consummate perfor- performer. But yeah, he never wrote anything, as far as I know. Certainly, not nothing of any particular note. So, is there anything else that we about Ronnie Corbett that you want to discuss before we go back to our episode? Well, uh, the the only other sort of sitcomy connection is a, a radio sitcom uh, mm. called When the Dog Dies that he did in 2010, and that is particularly notable because it was written by Peter Vincent and Ian Davidson, who wrote Sorry. So that was particularly interesting. Even in that. You know, he would have been 80 then. He was playing a 65-year-old. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that, I've listened to a bit of that, and it's, you know, it's about this old guy who's sort of having to deal with... Uh, it, actually, the, the bit I listened to is basically he's dealing with, you know, all the people in his family who, you know, are really horrible people. So actually quite <laughs> reminiscent of Sorry. <laughs> like, but in this case, it's his daughter and his son-in-law. Sorry, that's all we have time for this week, but do come back next time where we will continue to look through our episode and look at the other principal actors. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. And of course, you can get in touch with us on the social medias at BritcomPod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can visit the YouTube page, British Sitcom History, where we have the video versions of the podcast and other content as well. Please do rate and review us on iTunes, but only if you intend to give five stars. We look forward to seeing you next time.